Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. I recently was with one of our members who was all excited about something he discovered in his Bible reading in his quiet time. Uh, he said, have you ever seen this? And uh, he read to me from John chapter 14, verse 21 to 23, which says uh, that uh, the, he says, uh, that he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, says Jesus. And uh, he will be loved of my father. And he said, I will manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said unto him, How will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said, If a man loves me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He said, Did you ever see that? That Jesus and the father are going to come and make his abode with me. Dwell with me. Isn't that exciting? That's God the Father, God the Son, and of course God the Spirit all will dwell with me. Well, that's exactly right. And that's something to get tremendously excited about. In this portion of Scripture, you have something very similar to that. At the same time that uh, the Ten Commandments are given to Moses at Mount Sinai, God gave a system of worship whereby his people were to worship him. And uh, verse 8, notice what the Israelites were to do in Exodus 25. Let them make me a sanctuary or a holy place. Other titles given to this sanctuary, it's called a tabernacle. Or, and that comes from a root word, pitch your tent. God would pitch his tent among his people. The, it's called a tent of meeting. The idea that God would meet with them and they would meet with him at uh, this sanctuary. It's called a tent of the testimony or the witness. And speaking of the testimony of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses, which would be in the center of this worship by being placed in the Ark of the Covenant a box that was about the size of my pulpit here and uh, about a third is high. The Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone, would be placed in there. They would be in the innermost sanctuary of this tabernacle. And uh, it's called the Tent of the Testimony because the Ten Commandments testify of God's holiness, of His standards, of His character, His hatred of sin. And they testify against man when we violate God's standards. The objective of this sanctuary, it was to bring God near to the people where he would dwell in their midst, but at the same time keep him distant, uh, emphasizing his holiness and their sinfulness. And... Uh, only the priests could go into this sanctuary 
and to the innermost part of it, only the high priest could go once a year. That's where God's presence was peculiarly manifested. And notice why they were to do this. In verse 8 it says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wanted to dwell with them. You know, God existed for eons and eons and eons and eons without man even being in existence. And then God created man. And yet, in some strange way, though he doesn't need man, God desires fellowship with man. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, he wants to dwell with his people. And the object of this was to keep up a lively intercourse between God and his people. God and Israel. Uh, they were to be constantly aware of him and of his presence and of his holiness. Had he not given this system of worship, their worship of him would often have been done wrong. It would have been, uh, it would have easily have drifted into idolatry. It did drift into idolatry on many occasions. Uh, their concept of him would deteriorate rapidly. And uh, he gives this system of worship uh, so that they will know how to worship him and to bring the two of them together. The concept of God dwelling with man is basic to the Bible. It starts off with Genesis where God and man are in fellowship and God walks in the garden with Adam, in fellowship with Adam. Here this tabernacle is, uh, is to last for some 500 years. Afterward, uh, the temple was built. This is phased out and the temple is built by Solomon. And uh, that's another way of God's dwelling uh, with his people. Uh, the temple was on exactly the same pattern as this tabernacle. The design of it, the furniture in it. Everything was doubled in terms of measurements, but the same basic layout. And then there was another way of God dwelling with men. We read in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By Him the Word were all things made, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then you read, and the Word was made flesh, and dwelt or tabernacled among us. The second person of the Trinity, the Word, was made flesh, became man. And here God is tabernacling in human flesh. Another way, a dramatic way of God being with us. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking of the temple of his body. God dwelling in human form. And then you have... The church has another way of God dwelling with men. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 20, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. The church is a growing temple. Uh, it's constantly growing as people are being added to the church. And God dwells with his people through his spirit. When Jesus ascended, 
He sent the Spirit in a new and fuller way to dwell in His church. And then you have the individual Christian is a temple. Uh, my friend was excited because he said, Look, God the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit all are going to abide with me exactly in my body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have in you? Uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, We are a temple of the living God, even as God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The final culmination of God dwelling with men is in the new heavens and the new earth. You read about it in Revelation 21, where uh, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God as a bride adorned for her, hev- uh, for her, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his God, and, he shall, and they shall be his people. He will be their God. They shall be his people. And he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there will be no more sorrow nor death. Neither shall there be any more crying. For the former things have passed away. And uh, so here's this final dwelling of God with man in the perfected universe. A new heavens and a new earth. After it's all over. Speaking of dwelling places of God, I'm reminded of the... Sunday school teacher who uh, had a class of five-year-olds, and she she was asking them, where does God live? And she got the standard answers. Uh, little Sally said, well, God lives in heaven. And Janie said, God lives in church. And Johnny says, God lives in my bathroom. She said, Johnny, why would you say that? He said, well, every morning, Daddy stands outside the bathroom. He says, my God, are you still in there? (laughs) Well, God God does live in our homes, praise God, if uh, uh, we belong to Him. Uh, How were they to build this sanctuary for Him? Chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. This is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet, fine linen, so on. They were to bring uh, gifts, costly gifts, for the building of this sanctuary. And yet, they were to bring it with a willing heart, and he was only to accept it from a person who brought it gladly, with a willing heart. Our gifts are not acceptable to God. If we do it grudgingly, somebody pressured us into it, we don't want to do it. God wanted them to manifest in this way their desire for fellowship with him. And how did they respond? Chapter 35 Verse 20, it speaks of how they responded. And the congregation, uh, all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, every one whose heart stirred him up. 
and everyone whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and for his service and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted. In chapter 36, verse 5, They spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment to stop bringing, because they had more than enough. Uh, tremendous. That's what I plan to do shortly when you bring your offerings. I'll say, don't bring any more offerings. Everybody that believes that, <clears throat> raise your hand. Let's see. Uh, but the people responded with a willing heart uh, as God stirred them up. Costly gifts, representing sacrifice. But remember where these resources came from to begin with. When they were leaving Egypt, these had been slaves. They had no resources. God said, ask your neighbors for gifts. And God stirred up the neighbor's heart, gave the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians so that gold and silver and precious things were given to these slaves by their Egyptian neighbors as they left. So God gave the people the resources. And then he says, now I'm going to give you the opportunity to bring of those resources that I gave you and to offer them for my sanctuary, for my cause. And he says that to you and to me. I give you resources. Now I ask you to return a portion of that from a willing heart for my service. And it's only acceptable if we do it with a willing heart. Not only the provisions, but also the personnel he gave. In chapter 35 of Exodus, verse 25, it says... <clears throat> And all the women that were wise-hearted did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun, both of blue and of purple and of scarlet and of fine linen. And uh, verse 30, Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he hath filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship and to devise curious works to work in gold and in silver and in brass. So God gave the, not only the resources materially, but he gave the abilities to work and make this. Uh, the pattern of the layout of this tabernacle was given to Moses by God. In chapter 25, verse 9, he says, Make me a sanctuary according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. And then he gives very explicit details. Verse 10, They shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, so on. Every piece of furniture he details. Uh, and the whole layout. Now, uh, when Moses actually uh, rears this up, God, God shows him this pattern in the mount. If you look at verse 40, it says, Look that thou make them after the pattern which was showed thee in the mount. You do it just the way I showed you. 
And uh, when it's all complete in chapter 40, and Moses rears it up, and he places each item of furniture in the tabernacle, just as God had detailed, over and over, it's emphasized that he was doing all this exactly as commanded. Exodus 40, verse 16. Thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. And uh, verse 19, he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent above upon it as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 21, he brought the ark into the tabernacle, set up the veil of the covering, covered the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. Sixteen times in that chapter, as the Lord commanded Moses. Why all the emphasis on do it according to the pattern shown you in the mount? Because this layout of the tabernacle pictured the way of salvation. How sinful man could approach a holy God and be accepted. In the book of Hebrews, when the writer of Hebrews talks about the tabernacle, he refers to it as being copies of the things in the heavens or as shadows of good things to come. It's not that in heaven there's an ark and in heaven there's a seven-pronged candlestick, but these things illustrated heavenly truth, the truth about heaven and about the God of heaven and how we can be in heaven and so on. And so it's crucial that it be done just the way God said. For instance, around the outer court of this was a fence. And there was only one door that you could go through. Now here are millions of people. But anybody who wanted to go into the outer court, only one door. Why? That was to picture there's only one way of salvation. Not many ways. And if there had been many doors, if they'd say, well, gosh, we need some more doors, they would have been misrepresenting a very important truth. So God says, make it according to the pattern shown you in the mount. What was the design? How did it picture the way of salvation? Well, you go through that one door into the outer court, and in the outer court there was an altar, a brazen altar on which they would offer burnt offerings. Then there was a labor, a, a place to wash where the priests would wash, and they had to wash before they went into the tabernacle. Only the priests could go into the tabernacle. If they didn't wash, they would be smitten dead. In the first part of the tabernacle proper, there were three pieces of furniture. That was called the holy place. Uh, there was a table of showbread, uh, which fresh bread was to be placed on daily. And uh, this, this pictured the concept of man's offering to God of the fruit of the harvest, that God had given bread and man is now saying thank you as he presents a portion of this back to God, the, the first fruits in a sense. And uh, there was a seven-pronged lamp stand or candlestick made of gold that uh, was to give light. That pictured the fact that Israel was called to be a light to the nations and Christ is the light of the world. There was then a smaller altar of incense right before 
a huge veil. And that incense pictured prayers of intercession going up to the Lord. Then there was a veil separating the innermost sanctuary called the holiest of all. Only the high priest could go through that veil once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Inside that veil was this box, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid with gold, inlaid with gold. Inside of it were the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. The top of the box, there was a gold, solid gold covering, a sheet of gold to place over the top of the box called the mercy seat, covered the entire top area. And uh, on that uh, plate of gold were two cherubim, two angelic type beings fashioned that looked back down on the mercy seat, their faces toward the mercy seat. When, uh, when this would be set up, when it was actually all set in place, the cloud that led the children of Israel by day and became a pillar of fire by night moved over the tabernacle and, and went into that innermost part, that holiest of all, and settled right over the mercy seat. So there was a supernatural glow called the Shekinah glory there. In uh, Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 2, you read this. The Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron, thy brother, who was the high priest, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. He can only come once a year. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. And uh, in Numbers seven eighty nine, Moses heard the voice speaking unto him from above the mercy seat. A voice would come from there on occasion. What did that uh, picture? Well, that pictured the presence of God. That was symbolic of God's presence. And the question is, how can sinful man approach that holy God and be accepted, not be smitten dead as we deserve, since the wages of sin is death. Well, the priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, would take a lamb or a goat and he would confess the people's sin over the head of the lamb in the sight of all the people, symbolically transferring their guilt to this third party. Then he would kill the lamb, catch the lamb's blood in a basin, cut his throat, catch his blood in the basin, burn the lamb on the altar, take that blood, cleanse himself now at the laver, go into the holy place, but go through the veil into the holiest of all with that unique Shekinah glory there above the mercy seat, approaching it knowing that if he didn't do this right, he was going to be smitten dead. Lightning would leap out of the Ark of the Covenant and smite him dead. Take that blood and sprinkle it and pour it over the mercy seat. 
Then he would come out and he would tell the people atonement had been made and was accepted. He was still alive. My goodness. Um, What's being symbolized is the Lamb pictured Jesus Christ. Remember John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the real Lamb. His blood would be shed for our sins. His blood would cover the broken law that testified against us. And on that basis, God could be merciful and yet just. He's not overlooking his law. Payment's been made. Uh, in the New Testament, Romans 3, when it says that God set forth his son to be a propitiation, you could translate that. He set forth his son to be a mercy seat for us. And his blood covers the broken law. God says, there will I meet with you and there will I commune with you. In verse uh, 21 and 22 of chapter 25 there. I, there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony. There's how you and I can meet, says God, and I can forgive you. So the way of salvation being pictured, and of course uh, <clears throat> uh, all of this being fulfilled with the coming of Christ. There's a classic picture coming out of World War I where a communication line had been broken on the front and a soldier had been sent to find where it was broken and to get the cable back together and the wires back together. He found it and he grabs a wire in each hand and just as he's getting ready to splice them together, he's shot dead. And he falls, but he falls holding the cable in both hands and his body connects the two. His body becomes the missing link of the conduit here and messages go through his body, conducted through his body. And uh, this was drawn, this famous scene, it was drawn by an artist. And underneath the artist put, mission accomplished. And then he put one word, through. Well, see, that's what Jesus did. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he says, it is finished. And we can say, mission accomplished, through. Jesus Christ is the one through whom we can meet with God and God can meet with us and we can be forgiven and accepted as we put our faith in Jesus Christ and as we surrender our will to Jesus Christ. Uh, he abides, he makes his abode with us. We are part of that temple that God dwells in. Through, it is finished. And... Uh, uh, the how does all this apply to us? Well, it has significance for our access to God. Let's suppose we'd been present when Jesus died at Calvary. And we hear him cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he's undergoing the wrath of God for our sin, he is forsaken. He's, he's, the wrath due to us is being poured out on him. And then he says, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And we, we leave there and we rush into Jerusalem. We run into the temple there. The temple guards are not there. We're able to go right into that holy place. We see the seven-pronged candlestick and the showbread and the altar of incense. But that veil that separates the holiest of all 
has been ripped down from top to bottom like a giant hand had ripped it in twain. And as we go in, we go right into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant with the Shekinah glory over it. And we fall on our knees. And we're accepted. No lightning leaps from the box and devours us. Because the way has been opened by Jesus Christ. Once and for all. We never need to go through earthly priests again. We go right into the presence of God. In Hebrews 10... 19 and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has opened or consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his body. That veil symbolized his body. And when his body was rent, the veil was rent. Uh, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Like the priest, we need to cleanse ourselves, but we, we are cleansed through the blood of Christ when we put our faith in Christ and we go right into the presence of God and are accepted and can have full assurance of that. Come boldly. It has a lot to say about our access to God. It has significance for our activity. What are we supposed to be doing? We are building a sanctuary, a living sanctuary made up of living stones. And God has given us the resources to do it, materially and spiritually. And he calls us, now you build me a house to dwell in. And we build it as we go out and share our faith with others and tell them what Christ has done and what he wants to do. And that he wants to dwell with them, make his abode with them. If they will commit their lives to him, tell them the good news of Jesus. That's what the family for the father is all about, and EE and the other things that we do. It has implications for our attitude toward the scriptures. Notice the incredible correspondence between the design of that tabernacle and what God would accomplish in Jesus Christ and how he can be merciful. Was that tabernacle something Moses made up? I think it'd be a good idea to draw it like this. Aaron, what do you think? No. It was something God gave him and said, make it according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. The incredible correspondence, detail after detail, fitting exactly into place. 1,400 years later, the real lamb comes and the real lamb dies. And the veil is rent by an invisible hand in that temple when Jesus dies. The Bible is true. How in the world did Moses know how to lay this design out. How did he know what was going to happen in 1,400 years? God gave the scriptures. I challenge anyone to explain the correspondence without attributing it to the inspiration of God's spirit. Finally, it has implications for you being a sanctuary. Does Christ dwell in your body? He wants to if he doesn't. He desires fellowship with us. Do you want him to dwell with you? Do you want God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit to make their abode with you? Suppose you went through life without that. Wouldn't that be awful? That's what he wants. And if you've never really surrendered your will to Christ, never really trusted Christ, then it's not true of you. You're not a part of his sanctuary and he doesn't dwell within you. But don't you want that today? Invite him to do that.
yield your will and put your faith in Jesus? Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, if you have Christ in your life, are you excited about the privilege of it? Are you willingly giving your gifts to build that temple now of living stones? If Christ is not in your life, you're not a sanctuary for His Spirit and the Father and Christ, but you want to be. And you're willing to have a master to turn and obey Him. You believe Jesus' claims to be God the Son who died for your sins and rose from the dead. You want to receive Him and put your trust in Him. You pray in your heart the prayer that I prayed out loud, that I pray out loud right now. Jesus Christ, I want to be a sanctuary for you and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And I invite you to come and make me your sanctuary. Dwell in my body. I trust you to forgive my sin on the basis of your blood, O Lamb of God. And I trust you to come into my life. I surrender my will to you, purposing to obey you. Amen. If you pray like that, don't expect immediate feelings, but trust that he has come to live within and Come and tell me or someone about it so we can help you grow. I'd like to give you some literature.